Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. An interesting book titled Farragut and His Family, The Making of an Elder Hero. Our author, Robert L. Kellio, joins me to discuss his book. Thank you, sir, for being a part of the program. Well, I'm pleased to be here, Jay. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about how I came to write this book. Yes, love to hear it. Okay. In fact, it's a, uh, I say the story of how the book came to be really spans about half of my lifetime, which now I am 84 years old, so I am not only writing about an elder hero, but I'm an elder author. Mm. <laughs> uh, what happened to me was uh, in, uh, in 1968, I was working for uh, the International Nickel Company in New York, and I wrote for the company External Magazine an article on the blockade runners of the Civil War. And the reason I did that for that magazine is we had a company location with, uh, uh, where the blockade runners were entering during the war, and that was Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So to make a longer story, uh, long story short, um, I wrote that piece, but the piece somehow found its way over to England because this was an international company. And about a year later, I got a letter from a publishing company in London saying, would you write an article? on Admiral Farragut's role in the Civil War, and they were doing something that was kind of interesting. They were uh, publishing a monthly publication called History of the English-Speaking Peoples. And what that was, was they were serializing Winston Churchill's uh, four-volume work that he wrote yes. before yeah. World War II. And each each uh, issue would deal with part of that, and they would supplement that part with other articles on that particular time in history. So when they got up to the Civil War, he was handling the American Civil War. When they got up to that, they wanted to get articles on details about people in the Civil War. So they asked me, now the reason they asked me, I think they saw that one article. uh, And I was not, I really knew nothing about Farragut, but I said, this is a great chance. And I just went into it and I did a lot of research on him. And uh, I was captivated by more than just writing that article. His life, to me, is like a drama. Uh, it almost could be on a stage play. It could be fiction. So, so for 20 years after that, I've been doing research, writing uh, some magazine articles on uh, different aspects of his life. Finally, when I retired uh, a while ago, I decided I had so much information on him that I would turn it into a book. I never thought about that, and that's what I've done. You have uh, something that's unusual about your book, because Farragut was uh, of the uh, uh, 1800s, correct? That was mostly when he was uh, yeah. living and, he was, and active. He was born in 1801. 1801. In the Civil War, he, he became a hero during the 1860s, right? I'm seeing a picture, a photograph in your book. Is that actually Mr. Farragut? On the cover of the book? Uh, in, on the cover and inside, I'm seeing a black yes, that, and white. That, that is him. That's, that's a Civil War uh, period uh, photograph. That means he was then about 61 years old. Incredible, because the clarity of the photo is, is astounding by itself. When yes. you discovered Admiral Farragut, what was the thing that was intriguing about him that got your attention to begin with? Well, I think that he actually... Uh, he entered the Navy at age nine. Amazing. And, was, and he was, it was amazing, I have to tell you a little bit of how he got into the Navy, but uh, what intrigued me, he entered the Navy at age nine. At age 12, he was fighting uh, on a uh, frigate in the Pacific Ocean against uh, British warships uh, during the War of 1812. So he was a midshipman in the Navy at age nine and went into the, directly into the War of 1812. His commander, of the ship was be, had become his foster father before that. Fascinating. So maybe I should back just backtrack a little. Um, what happened here is he was born in uh, Tennessee to a 
Spanish immigrant who had come over to the United States, uh, it wasn't the United States then, but America, uh, in 1776, and uh, fought with the colonists in the Revolution. And uh, after the Revolution, settled in Tennessee, uh, married a woman he met along the way, and then they had uh, several children, one of whom was uh, the future Admiral. And uh, But it wasn't long that he stayed with that family. At se- about the uh, age seven or eight, the family had trans- been uh, transferred to New Orleans. His father was, at that point, in the, in the United States Navy. He had fought in the, uh, on land in the Revo- Revolutionary War, and he became a sailor because he originally had been a seaman in Europe. Uh, so he was transferred to New Orleans, and they were there to try to protect uh, the coastline against the British, uh, who, was, who were trying to uh, invade the United States or, or interrupt its commerce, and, and that's that's what started the War of 1812. But uh, when soon after they got to New Orleans, the, the entire family, uh, his mother died of yellow fever, which was kind of rampant in New Orleans in those days. So the father was left with uh, six children. And one day, uh, he came along uh, with uh, home with his the commanding officer. And uh, all the children were there. And the commanding officer had offered to take one of the children to leave his burden. Mm-hmm. So when they, when they appeared, uh, they presented that to the children, some of whom were uh, girls and some of them. Two were boys, uh, three were boys, one was very small. And uh, the fellow who became the admiral, uh, David, who became David Glasgow Farragut, said, I'll go. He was about seven years old, eight years old. And, and he, he explained later why he said that. He said because he fell in love with the commanding officer's uniform. Wow. And also his brother, who was like a year or two earlier, older than him, had already been uh, entered the Navy as a midshipman. See, they entered the Navy very early in, in those days that they had uh, sponsors and so forth. And so uh, that's how the future admiral ended up fighting in the Pacific Ocean on a frigate, and the commanding officer was the, the one who had taken him from his father, who was a, then a captain in the Navy. His name was uh, David Porter. David Porter was really one of the heroes uh, in the War of 1812 in the end, you know, and... Uh, now was his was his father uh, from Menorca, the Balearic Islands? His original natural father was from Menorca in the, in the Balearic Islands, right? Yes, and for my listeners, uh, give them a little of the geographical location so they can visualize in their mind where that would uh, would actually oh, be. Those islands, uh, probably many people have heard of Menorca, which yes. is the biggest mm-hmm. in the Balearic Islands. Menorca is a smaller one, and they are off uh, the closest big place in Spain, I would say, but it's right off the bed. It's off the southern coast of Spain in the Mediterranean. Yes, correct, correct. And, uh, so he had, a, so, he had a, an attachment or an ancestral heritage that had Spanish influence in it. The challenges that he had in life, the crises that he encountered, which of those do you feel was the most life-changing for Admiral Farragut? Well, uh, one of the first uh, ones he had was in this uh, battle he was fighting when he was uh, uh, at age 12. And that was the only uh, uh, combat he had, he ever saw until the Civil War, 50 years mm. later. So his first battle was very severe because during that time, this frigate that he was on... Uh, was surrounded by two British warships. They caught the, they, they were chasing uh, this frigate because what happened is Captain Porter, who was the commander of the, uh, and the uh, Farragut's foster father, had been, uh, sailing around the Pacific and, uh, capturing, seizing British whalers and the oil that they were, they, they, he was after commercial ships and not fighting warships in the Pacific Coast. There weren't too many warships in the Pacific during the World War II. But after he seized enough British whalers and uh, took over, took the, the oil, which was worth millions of dollars, you know, uh, the British sent out a couple of ships to chase him. And they caught him in the harbor of Valparaiso, Chile. Uh, and what happened is they, 
Captain Porter, who was kind of a daring person, and I guess he was a great mold, role model for Admiral Farragut, the future admiral, um, he decided he would like to fight the two ships, but he knew he couldn't fight them together, so he would try to angle his ship towards one of them. But every time he did that, the other one would come in, the, in the view, and they, they would be surrounded. Finally, he decided he would try to get out of the harbor, and uh, he did not think they would attack him because there was sort of an, a rule of the sea that uh, during wartime, you're not supposed to sh um, ever attack an enemy in a neutral port. This was a neutral port in Chile, right? Yes. But the British would, uh, were determined to get him. So as he tried to escape the uh, harbor, what happened is a, a stiff wind came along and ripped some of his sails. And it sort of... Uh, disabled the ship a little bit. He tried to get away by going into a cove uh, where he thought he could repair his ship, but they surrounded him. And so to get to your uh, question about the, what was a crisis in Farragut's life, sure. for the first time in his life as a boy of 12, he saw people shot into ribbons. Uh, they were surrounded. Hmm. And he says in the book, uh, his job during the battle was to be the captain's assistant and to yell out the captain's orders over the uh, noise of the cannon or to deliver messages to the gunners or whatever the captain needed to keep the ship uh, going. Uh, but he said, as I stood near the captain, one shell came through a, uh, a gun opening on the ship, actually killed four people at one time and scattered the brains of one person over the, him and his captain. Ouch. So I think that's a, that was a bit of a crisis, but I, I think uh, he says then at that, he said he, that, that just made war real to him, and he just forgot what was going on and did his duty. You know? Life-changing uh, moment, for sure. Yeah, so you... I think, uh, now we don't know, he, he never had, uh, faced combat until 50 years later in the Civil War. He was in the Navy all that time, but he was always on peace, it was always, it was always peace time years. He was always on cruises where there was no combat, really. But when the time came with Civil War, I guess that probably helped him more than anything else because he had already seen, you know, something as bad as you can see during war, I guess, you know. You've assigned the, the term hero to Admiral Farragut. Why right. that particular term? What is oh, okay. it about him? He became a, a national hero, and I guess uh, I, I give you this, uh, his portfolio in the Civil War. He uh, became known as someone who could make quick decisions in crises uh, when uh, either his ship was in trouble or you know his objective was not being met. He would be able to turn things around. I just got it was uh, the thing he's most famous for was his last battle, the invasion of Mobile Bay, and uh, that's. But he's had the, he's had other battles before that. But I, I'll go to the, the the one that people talk about most mostly, and they think of the phrase "damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead." Right? Yes, that that's what he's known for. Well, what happened in the invasion of Mobile Bay? He he was he he had to go past to get into Mobile Bay with his fleet of about uh, maybe sixteen, seventeen ships. He had to go past heavily armed forts guarding that harbor in, Mo in Mobile. Uh, and that was one of the last entrances for uh, the Confederates was, uh, trading for weapons with uh, Britain in, in exchange for cotton and so forth. So they wanted to close that harbor. And so as he, his, what he did is he lined his ships up and he ordered them. He was very, uh, very detailed person. He had them uh, ranged in a line before they entered. He had each main uh, large ship which were steam going, but also sail ships together, uh, lashed to smaller gunboats. And they were actually lashed by chains. And the reason he said that, he, always, he did that in other battles, is because in, this, in these river fights, well, this was not a river fight, it was off the Gulf of Mexico, but he had other river fights earlier. Sometimes ships would get grounded, and the gunboats would be able to pull them off if they did, you know. So he always lashed them to a smaller gunboat. Anyway, as the parade of ships entered Mobile Bay and they were firing on these forts, and the forts were a little higher level firing down on them, the Confederates had uh, made it even harder for them. 
Confederates had blocked the harbor with logs uh, so that the ships could not could only go through a, a little channel which was right underneath the main fort. So they were really uh, targets as they passed the main fort. And uh, they also had blocked the harbor with what they called torpedoes. And these are impact devices such as the things we're seeing now on the ground in Iran and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. You hit them and they explode, you know. So if a ship, it's like a, like a mine, you know. Mm-hmm. If a ship hit them, it explodes. Well, as they did, uh, he was convinced that uh, he should be second. His ship, his flagship called the Hartford, this time was always the first ship in any uh, battle he uh, entered. But they convinced him that he should be second this time. And he didn't want to do that, but they said, Send one ahead of you, and uh, you can direct us from from behind a little. So he sent the uh, one ship ahead. He was second in line. As they paraded through, the first ship hit a mine and exploded. Hmm. And then it didn't actually break up, but the captain of that ship stopped the engine and put them in reverse. Meanwhile, he's pushing the whole line of ships back and making them easy targets because they couldn't move. You know? So at that point, Farragut made his famous order. He did not actually say damn the torpedo, but he, he looked at what was happening, and also at the same time, he saw an, one of his ironclad ships, which these ironclads were the ones that they relied on to fight. You know, they were, they were sort of looked like uh, above the surface submarines. You've seen those. Right, uh, yes. Right. And uh, the one that he was relying on heavily when he got into the harbor did hit a mine too and exploded and sunk. So he f- it was really bad. It was a critical moment because if they had not moved ahead or done anything, they would have been destroyed by the, the fort, you know, and so forth. So what he did is he just went around the, the ship that was trying to go in reverse, and he just rallied the whole line, and he said, full speed ahead. They all went ahead. They went through the mines, through the logs, and they made it into the harbor. And that was a critical moment because someone could have uh, fallen apart at that moment and thought all was lost, and it could have been lost. And so he was known for quick decisions, and that was what he was really known for. And other uh, things I can talk about, he made quick decisions to save lives, save himself, and, uh, and, and be victorious or not lose a battle anyway. Well, he's a fascinating yeah. character, and you have done a wonderful job of researching not only... Uh, Admiral Admiral Farragut, but also his family, and given some wonderful detail about their lives, including pictures and photos and, and other parts of your essay. This is an interesting book, 153 pages. The title again is Farragut and Family, The Making of an Elder Hero. Our guest, Robert L. Callio. Sir, where can we get copies of your book? Well, I believe now it's... Uh you can get copies by writing to uh, actually it's on the Amazon, it's on BarnesandNoble.com. dot com. Wonderful. Uh, and I think there's an ebook also probably in Barnes and Noble. It's just out now, and uh, uh, the publisher is handling all that. But definitely can write to uh, actually with. We'll go through them. And a lot of people have got buying the books on, online, I think. Yeah. Very good. They can do a search under your name, Robert L. Calio, C A L E O is the correct correct. spelling of it, and they'll be able to find about this book and others that perhaps you will write in the future. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Well, thank you. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Get ready to live la bella vita. With Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live La Bella Vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live La Bella Vita. For more on the show and your host, check out our website, labellavitacosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita. 
with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Mystic. And the author, actually the son of the author, Peter Lamana, is joining me today. And his name also is Peter. Peter, welcome to the program, sir. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Very, very well, thank you. You have been integral into the publishing of this book. Share a little of your father's story and and where he is now. I understand he has a health crisis that he's recovering from, but he also was the primary author of this book. Share some of that uh, history. Absolutely. About three years ago, my father had suffered a stroke. Fortunately, the stroke had only affected his ability to communicate. His cognitive, his thought process still remained intact. And so what he did as therapy with my encouragement was would sit, he would sit down and he would write. He would type on the computer. He would type on his old typewriter, and he would create stories. One of the stories that he seemed to keep returning to was a story about a small country town named Mystic, and the town was placed shortly after the Civil War. Over the three years, as he wrote this, the unfortunate thing is that it became more and more of a confusion. The story had a main line to it, which he and I would frequently discuss. However, when he would type it, it came out all confused and jumbled. Hmm. When we submitted the, the final manuscript to the publisher, they returned it with over 300 points in the story where there was confusion or need for clarification. What I then did was I sat down and over the course of three to four weeks, ten hours a day, I rewrote the story as my father and I had discussed it for the past three years. Incredible. The nuances of the story, the little intricacies, are mine. The story itself is my father. The characters are my father's creation. The way the story moves is my father's creation. And even the structure of the story is my father's creation. There are no chapters in this, in this book. The reason why there's no chapters is my father wanted it to be as if you or I or anybody were sitting down and simply hearing a story being told to us by our grandfather. Our grandfathers never sat there and said, Now, Jay, chapter one... And then mm, right. tell a story. He would not sit there and say, Jay, chapter two. He would just tell you the story. And that's now, what my father wanted. Now, Pete, your dad, has he always been a storyteller throughout his life, and did he always have a passion for, for baseball? Because that is the, the foundation of this story. He's always been a storyteller, and he's always had a passion for baseball. He would tell stories of playing baseball during the Depression. He's 87. He'll be 88 in two months. He would tell stories of baseball during the Depression or during World War II when he was in the Marines. He would tell stories of other things. He played football because he wasn't that good of a baseball player, so he played football. <laughs> he would tell stories of that. He loved to relate different kinds of events. And how did he know this much of the history? Because it is said in 1867. That, uh, for me, would be a difficult task. Uh, was it difficult for him to, to recount that, uh, that part of history in baseball? One of the things that my father has is he has a, a doctorate. He has a doctor of education. Mm -hmm. And in, doing, or in earning that, he became a researcher. So one of his enjoyments in creating this story was actually sitting down with books and and we have a library in our house literally of baseball books some of them are very old some of them are brand new and he would research and and, and backtrack and pull together as much as he could uh, of the history of baseball so that he could nail down the facts the best as he could fabulous 
uh, just to give the listeners a, a, a little bit of a flavoring of how you and your cooperative effort have written this particular book, the story begins like this. It was late in September 1867, and the score was 56 to 34. The ball, muddy and grass-stained, was virtually invisible in the twilight. As darkness beckoned, both captains decided to call the match with the bachelors well ahead of the married men. So you set the stage. I'm already intrigued and drawn into the story. Is there a character-driven plot in this, or is it more just a descriptive romp and a, a tale of baseball? There is a character-driven plot. There are very endearing characters that have been created throughout the whole story, ones that you can easily identify with. The, the plot to the whole story is that the little town of Mystic has been playing a form of early bat and ball game called Muffin Ball. Mm-hmm. Muffin Ball would be equated to today's Harlem Globetrotters, what they are to basketball. Right. And Muffin Ball was fun. It was enjoyable, but the town wanted to move on. And the captain of the team, the town team, that played Muffin Ball is the primary character in this story. He is trying to move the town forward and progress it towards more of an organized baseball, as it was developing at the time in the cities like New York, Cincinnati, Philadelphia. Uh, Pete, you say it took about three years to get this completed. When you began this story, it primarily began as a way to keep your father involved in life and also keep his mind active it developed into something that was worth publishing when did you do when did you come to the conclusion that this is a story that might want to be shared i knew i knew early on because i would sit and we would talk about it but it was over this past summer july june that i i remember sitting with my father in a restaurant simple little diner and i said to him well, the way we communicate is through written notes. He can't speak anymore. Hmm. I, I had said to him that we should really publish this. He has never published a, a book. He's published papers. He's published things that were within his profession. But he's never published a book or a novel or even one of his short stories. I love my father very deeply, and I wanted to give this to him. And so I made it a, a personal uh, goal to do everything I, I could to enable this story to be out into the, in the community. Well, beautiful task and, and uh, triumph that you have completed this task, 288 pages. Is there a, a message that comes through that perhaps uh, invokes the wisdom of your father and his insight into life in general through the story? My father has always been a person who loved family. He, he grew up as the middle child of a large Italian immigrant family. He cherished his own children, and he cherished the closeness that we had. In that story, of, or in the story of Mystic, while it is not family-driven, it is driven in a communal sense of family. The town of Mystic is a family itself. I grew up in a very small town, very similar to Mystic, and I can tell you that I walk down the street, we don't have streets, we have roads, uh-huh. I walk down the road and I see neighbors and they are just as if I were seeing a relative. It's that kind of closeness that my father wanted to bring out to people today, largely because that's a sense that is missing, at least that's what he feels. It's missing from today's society especially in the world of baseball. Baseball's a great sport. Everybody seems to love it. However, through different kinds of egos and agendas and narcissistic behavior, professional baseball has become tainted. Hmm. And now even minor, minor league and even little league baseball is becoming tainted. My father wanted to remind everybody that this is a family, that this is a sport or an activity that an entire community can enjoy and that we should be enjoying and returning to. This book then would be appealing to just about anybody at any age. Yes, it would. I had a friend of mine pre-read it. 
Uh, and she is a 71-year-old Canadian. She read it. She, they're not a baseball fan. She didn't even understand the game. She read the story, loved the characters, and at the, at the conclusion, she just said to me one very simple thing. She said, I'm now a baseball fan. Ah, what a beautiful commendation that was. I loved it. Any love interest that he threw into the mix, or was it all pretty much uh, guy character-driven? It, it is mainly uh, guy character-driven. There are <laughs> female characters within the story. They are appropriate. They are supportive, and they're enjoyable. However, there's no romantic interest in this. Uh, my father wanted to keep it something on the level that even children could enjoy without them sitting there and scratching their heads and saying, why is this happening or why is that happening? Mm -hmm. To introduce this book to somebody that has just discovered that you are co-authoring or at least have been a contributor to this book, Mystic, how would you do so? I would simply say, and I have said in the past, that Mystic is a story that takes you back to an earlier time. It takes you to a simpler time, possibly, a time when baseball was pure, when baseball was still a game and not a money-making business. Most of us in this country have an understanding of great baseball stories, like Field of Dreams, The Natural, Stories that you walk away from and you feel good about baseball and you feel good about life. Unfortunately, with the way professional baseball and, as I said, even Little League now has started to turn, that feel-good emotion has started to erode and fade away. Mystic allows us to pull back that curtain, that fog of, of, of problem and sneak a peek back to what baseball originally was. Something to be enjoyed, cherished, something to sit back and laugh and have fun with. You've shared that uh, the one action scene or the one scene that you did create or co-create with your father, uh, having to do with the final game, was something that you enjoyed. What was so special about that final game included in the book? Oh, uh, The final game, which occupies a good portion of the, of the 288 pages, what was important about that were several things. One is, shortly after the Civil War, the slaves were emancipated. They were free. A good number of them were uneducated. They didn't know what to do. They had to earn some form of a, an existence, let alone a, an actual living. And what many of them would do is travel from town to town. Some would be carpenters, farmers, hired hands. But in this case, what we have is a traveling team of ball players. They were called the drummers. And they were coming into Mystic. Now, Mystic is placed in a board, what's called a border state, a state that was neither southern nor northern sympathetic. However, the town of Mystic itself was a northern sympathetic town. There's no racism there. Mm. So the, the drummers, this slave team, are coming in to play a celebratory game for the 4th of July. And this is a huge event for the town because it's the 4th of July, it's uh, the first season of baseball for the town, and the drummers are coming in. This was an event to behold. And so in this game, we learn a lot about the different characters that, that were on the drummers and on the mystic team. We learn a lot about how they handled slavery. We learn a lot about how they handled baseball. They had a lot of fun. Some of the characters you felt sorry for. Some of the characters you sat back and just absolutely loved. Most of the characters had a, had a backstory that could easily evolve into other stories somewhere in the future. However, the events of that game, every single pitch, every single hit was important because the town made it important. But the game didn't start with the first pitch. The game started the night before when the drummers showed up and they opened up their camp and their arms to the town and offered the town 
a thank you by way of hosting a good old-fashioned southern, let's say, Cajun-style picnic. And the town turned out for this, and they just melted into into the pot of of, of unity. It was fun. I even today still sit back and pull the book out and just open it up and read a, read a few pages and just sit there and smile and laugh. Pete, in your story, you also feature some elements of music. How important was that to your storyline, and what was it about? Oh, music. Music was an important part of the middle 19th century, especially after the Civil War. Before every one of the games, there is a musical interlude where the hosting town or the hosting team provides some form of musical entertainment for the crowd. Usually it's the build-up to the presentation of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, since there was no national anthem at the time. As the story progressed, the musical interludes became grander and grander until the final end, when they play the drummers, the musical interlude becomes a musical battle. And it is so engaging. I just loved writing it. Pete, has your dad considered even doing a sequel to this story? Oh, absolutely. He's actually, right now as we're speaking, up in his room at the computer, diligently hammering out a sequel to Mystic. And it's going to be, it's going to be really engaging. It's going to be equally as fun as the original story, but the twist of it is a little bit different. I can give a little hint. But I'm not sure if I should. Yeah, probably shouldn't. I, I'm I'm seeing a um, movie of the week, or maybe even a major motion picture out of a story that's uh, so fun and uh, uh, community oriented like this one. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. It's a, it's a great idea what you have and your father have have accomplished in this book. I, I love the fact that there's no chapters. That makes it rather unique in its uh, in its style and certainly the content should be enjoyable by even folks like me who are not avid baseball fans. I love the the settings and the the storyline that you have woven into the story. The title of the book, again, is Mystic. Author, Peter Lamana, and our guest has been his son, Peter Lamana. Thank you, sir, for sharing the story and the background information about this book. Where do my listeners get copies of it? Well, currently... They can uh, obtain copies through the publisher, Ex Libris, at their bookstore, exlibris.com. They can also get their own copies through Amazon or through the Barnes & Noble website. We are working to have it installed in Barnes & Noble physically so that you can go to your local store and purchase it over the counter. It is available as an e-book, uh, and it is also available in hardback and paperback. Pete, please pass along our uh, best wishes to your father and uh, hope that many more stories are forthcoming from from his uh, brilliant mind. So thank you again for sharing his story and also the story of this book, Mystic, by Peter Lamana. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. 
The book today is a difficult study, but one that's important for every parent to hear. It's titled, Escorted Away, and our author, Harry Josephson, joins me from Ohio. Thank you, sir, for being a part of today's program. And thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to reach out to your listeners. You share a story about your own family and about a very difficult time that you went through and one that perhaps for many parents is a looming nightmare they hope they never have to experience. Share a little of the background into what Escorted Away is about and why you chose to share your story. Okay. Uh, my son, uh, Ronald, was uh, a heroin addict, actually still is a heroin addict, and I went through about 10 years of what I'll describe as a personal hell of trying to deal with that and the ramifications that that has to the whole family, not only to his life, but to mine and everyone else around him. And uh, the Escorted Away title came from the fact that way back when he was 17 years old, he's now uh, 26, I had him uh, literally, uh, two big guys came to the house and picked him up and took him away to Iowa to a disciplinary boarding school where he stayed for a year that he would not have uh, completed high school had he not done so, so uh, or had I not done that. In the 132 pages, I was curious, were there early signs before his 14th birthday that perhaps he might make bad decisions in life? Yes, there were. He, uh, he was a, a difficult child in many respects. Um, he started to uh, experiment with things like uh, knives and and flammable liquids and things of that nature as as a youngster. And it seemed like, I don't know if it was uh, the TV shows he watched or just the environment he grew up in, but he seemed to have a bit of a, a violent bent, um, even as a youngster. His one year away in Iowa, did that provide any positive impact on his life? did from the point of view that he learned some uh, discipline for the first time, and I take responsibility for the fact that he had uh, a great lack of discipline growing up at home. Um, I coddled him, and in addition to that, he did, or he was able to complete high school, which I don't believe he would have done had I not had him taken there. He was, he was about a year and a half behind in high school at the time I had him picked up. Is there an advice that you would give to a parent that may feel their child is making some poor decisions? All children, when they're teenagers, seem to want to go their own way, but what makes your story different, and how would you advise a parent? Well, I've described my book as a what-not-to-do manual as a parent. Um, I think it's extremely important in hindsight to make sure that uh, that all your children uh, you know, understand that if they do the wrong things, make bad choices, there's a, a consequence for that, a negative consequence that they have to experience. I spend almost all of my energy and love trying to shield him, uh, protect him, and rescue him from uh, negative consequences. And all that did was send the message that there's no real consequence for wrong behavior because Dad will get me out of it. In your family history... Are there other members of your family, immediate or uh, perhaps past family members, that encountered similar challenges in their life? Uh, not directly. Uh, now, Ronald's mother was arrested a couple of times for uh, for DUI, uh, driving under the influence. So uh, it is my experience and knowledge, the things I've learned, that that some of this can uh, arise in families and be uh, hereditary. When you when you decided to write this, uh, Harry, how long did it take to put your thoughts together and get to the point where you felt it was time to share your story? Uh, probably about seven to eight years in the making. Uh, you know, giving it thought, taking notes, trying to remember the sequence of events, which uh, my life was a blur for about seven or eight years, and then I took another couple of years to sort it out, <laughs> I right. guess, before I put uh, pen to paper as order. Is there a, uh, a specific first notice 
that came into your family where you decided not decided in retrospect in looking back said I, I wish I had seen that 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 warning sign at at uh, that initial stage and perhaps I could have um, caused it to turn in a different direction right I think when my son started to grow marijuana plants in his closet and we found them and then found a note from uh, another parent that was anonymously sent because the person was I guess afraid to know or for us to know who sent it that he had sent an email to a friend saying he'd uh, been high 24-7 since school had gotten out in junior high that year before the ninth grade I believe it was that I should have gotten him some help at that point you know gotten him to see a psychologist uh, something but just just kind of let it go after uh, some minor consequences sure and one other question that I'm sure every parent listening would want to know, what are the available helps out there for people who perhaps are on a limited income, don't have a lot of financial resources, but know that they're they're needing some assistance? Where do they turn? Well, there's lots of resources in our community and probably every community. There's a, a place called uh, Mary Haven that's it's literally free to people that that are indigent even um there's the drug court it has a program um most psychologists around are aware of, of of some inexpensive resources if not some some free resources that can be taken advantage of for people that are in this this predicament and then i would recommend for the parents uh, at least an al-anon or an r-anon program because until I started to do that, which which wasn't until 2010, I really had no way or no idea how to cope with this this problem. And it's a huge problem for the whole family, not just for the addict. There needs to be a network of help, not just a single contact point. Right, I would agree with that. And 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 you know, everyone has to find out in their own way how to cope with this situation. And it seems like, at least in my case, it was just like a big snowball rolling downhill. And I was scrambling to try to help to uh, shield him from from legal consequences, from getting sick, all kinds of other things. And uh, all I did was make the situation worse. And I believe, and I think you'll find this in my book, I believe there is help, but I also believe that as the parent, we can be, and I was, a part of the problem. Mm. Your your writing style, uh, Harry, is one of a conversational approach. You actually recreate incidents that happened in your life and also Ronald's life and have uh, described them in a narrative fashion. Was this purposeful to make it more, right. more uh, of a, an approachable subject matter, or what was your thoughts in writing it in that direction? Well... I tried to show uh, in sequence, as best as I could remember it, how things happened. And I believe uh, if you if you have a child who's going through this, you may be able to relate to what I went through in sequence, and just how you get caught up in the whole the whole situation, and and literally don't have a chance to step back and see how it's unfolding, seeing how you're reacting to it. So if some folks can see uh, the way I dealt with it, or as I didn't deal with it, as the case may be, in sequence, they might say, wow, I've been through many of those same things myself and didn't know what to do. And there are a lot of addictive behaviors, not just drugs uh, and alcohol. There are other addictive behaviors that need to be nipped in the bud, as it is often called or said. You have written a book that's uh, had to have been very challenging from a personal standpoint to relive some of those moments. What did you hope to accomplish by sharing your story? Well, it was very emotional to uh, to write this book, but I thought if there are people out there going through what I went through and they don't know where to turn, they don't know how to react, then if there's a way for me to help them, it might, it might save them a lot of anguish, maybe save uh, the life of a child. Uh, the enabling that I did, I believe, literally helped risk my son's life. Mm. And if other parents can can stop any behaviors they have that may risk their children's life, uh, even even one of those would be worth the effort. And your into the book. 
Yes, and your book is written for parents and uh, also those who might be going through the stress of addiction. Uh, is there any message underlying right. that you wanted to share that specifically came through in the final pages? I'd say two things, that in order for an addict to get clean, they have to experience the consequences of their negative choices. They can't be shielded from them. And as a parent or a member of the family, you can be a part of the problem. So step out of the way, get off the addiction train track, because the train will run you over and the addict. Well said. Share an introduction to my listeners in a couple of paragraphs and let them know why they need their own copy, even if they are not personally going through this challenge, but they should read Escorted Away. I'd say it's a, it's a what-not-to-do manual for parents, not only for addiction, although it does apply to that, but for many other uh, behaviors in life. So if you're trying to raise a child, there's a lot in here. And I'm no expert, but from my own personal experiences, are things not to do if you want to have uh, a healthy child who will grow into a healthy adult. Harry, this has been a challenging journey so far. What is the status of your son? How is he doing? He's in uh, a small town in northeast Ohio. He's been sober since uh, July 17, 2012. And assuming he stays down that path, he'll be uh, three years sober uh, this coming July. That's wonderful news. Pass on our best wishes to him and to your family. Harry, thanks for sharing your story. This is 132 pages, a must-read for many parents. Maybe every parent should get a copy of this. Escorted away, our guest author, Harry Josephson. Harry, my listeners will want to get a copy of this. How can they obtain one? Uh, on the exlibris.com website. Uh, they could also get it through Amazon and I have a website, uh, www.escortedaway.com, that will link them to those resources, and a, a Twitter page, Harry Josephson at Escorted Away. Harry, thank you for taking the courage to write this book, first of all, and best of luck to you and your family as you continue to face challenges in the future. Thank you for sharing this story and for giving our parents and our listeners an opportunity to learn from your mistakes and from your right choices. Thank you, sir. Right. I appreciate it, Jay. Thank you so much. My pleasure for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.